Greetings, Dysfunctionals. Today, we are back with another episode. I am your host, Ernesto Morales, and today I have with me Nick Panley-Bhutan. Nick is a recently admitted social justice community organizing master's student here at Prescott College, originally from the Washington, D.C. area. Nick is Filipino with a rich family history of activism. His father's father immigrated to San Francisco in the 1930s, and his family was part of the international hotel eviction struggle in the 1970s, which brought students from the newly created ethnic studies program at San Francisco State University to aid in the fight. Nick, I'm glad that you're here today, man. I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's good to be here. All right. So one of the things uh, that we were talking about the other day is I was thinking that maybe you could just kind of uh, tell people a little bit about your uh, journey through this, and uh, then we could uh, talk a little bit about the work that you did this summer with the Painters Union. Sure. Cool. Yeah, so like you said in, in that introduction, my uh, I've always had a rich family history in um, community organizing and activism and whatnot. I think having uh, immigrant roots, when you're an immigrant, especially first migrating to a new country, communities, everything. So it makes sense that there's a lot of solidarity when it comes to certain movements. And like you said, my my family immigrated here to San Francisco originally, my grandfather in the 1930s, and then later my grandmother post-World War II, and then had my dad. My grandmother, ever since she got to the U.S., um, she's always been involved with elderly care, and that was kind of her um, her business throughout her life. So the international hotel struggle, um, it happened from 1968 to 1977. The international hotel is, is a building on Kearney street, right? Adjacent, um, to Chinatown in San Francisco. And, and it, it was historically Kearney street. That whole block of Kearney street was Manila town. You know, that's where all the Filipino elderly lived. Um, and you know, they lived and they played pool and whatnot and all that. So the International Hotel was um, where they went to bed. You know, it was this building that occupied predominantly elder, low-income Filipino men. And why was it predominantly men? It was predominantly men. So there's this whole um, generation of immigrants that's been explained to me as the bachelor generation, right? Like my grandfather who immigrated here in the 30s, right? He immigrated here. I think he followed his brother here um, for work. And then in the 1930s, I think that's where you see um, the first harsh immigration legislation passed. That's when the Chinese Exclusionary Act was there, put in place, you know. Um, and there, were, there was a lot of legislation at that time to kind of, for lack of better terms, put a quota on the people of color coming to this country. You know, it's basically like, we'll take these men for their labor and that's it. There was legislation that they couldn't marry, you know, especially outside of their race. There's an interesting story where, so my my grandfather's brother, um, he married a white lady, but they had to drive to Mexico to perform the ceremony. Um, yeah. And, Dang, uh, yeah, they really wanted to get married. Right. Yeah, they did. <laughs> um, so that so with a lot of that kind of legislation, it was just all men, right. you know, in this community. So anyway, 1968, a lot of these men, and in, in, there's a Filipino term called manongs or manangs, which basically means a respected elder, you know? So a lot of these manongs, they lived in this building, the International Hotel, 
and the owner of the of the building wanted to tear it down and create it into a a parking lot you know at that time was the very same time where the sf state struggle was going down for uh, ethnic studies you know so you had a lot of politically active students and faculty right in that neighborhood who were very involved with that same eviction struggle. You know, it was these young students, it was kind of this beautiful moment, right? Where these young students who were very involved in this fight for ethnic studies, going to this building or this community looking for guidance, you know, from these respected um, immigrant elders and whatnot. So when they learned that they were trying to evict these elderly people, it sparked this massive um, from 68 to 77, right? This um, nine-year struggle, basically, to fight off this eviction. And it, it was really the, I, I would say, is one of the mo- most critical moments in terms of San Francisco housing justice movement, um, a, a staple in, like, the Asian-American justice movement, you know, and it's sad because at the end of the day, it failed in August 4th, 1977. That community was uh, forcibly evicted. They had the sheriff. They had all these cops outside. And there's footage. You know, there's a great documentary uh, about What's, it. Do you know the name of the documentary? It's called The Fall of the Eye Hotel. The uh, Fall of the Eye Hotel? Yeah. That's a great title. Okay. Yeah. And um, so all these elderly were forcibly evicted. And the documentary touches on really the day-to-day life of these elderly men and um what brought them here, the jobs they would have. And, and then it goes into the story of the eviction. Right. So it, it, it was knocked down in 77. And then what was supposed to be a parking lot really just turned into this empty lot for around 30 years, just this empty piece of land until 2005, where these community organizers partnered with Chinatown and I think SF state as well and the city to where they built, a new building, same, the I-Hotel, um, to commemorate that history and offer just the same um, low-income housing for immigrant elderly people, you know, the same purpose the original I-Hotel had. And it has a community center attached to it called the Manila Town Heritage Center. Yeah, it's a cool place. My aunt lives there right now. Okay. So it's a, I mean, it's, one of those multi-generational stories. Yeah. I mean, it just shows how like, even though lots of times we think that the the struggles that we're in, that they didn't succeed, that there's just really these seeds that get planted and that allows people in the future, right? To come back to these struggles and to, you know, try to right these wrongs or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's huge. I mean, it's uh, San Francisco is out of control in terms of like how much it costs to live there. Right. And so, I mean, that's, um, I think a, a real issue around the whole idea of like, who has the right to the city, our cities becoming more and more just these places that, you know, house, uh, you know, elites and, and rich and, and all of this, or, you know, do all of us have the right to be there, right. you know? And I mean, with the world's population shifting from like rural areas to to urban areas, it's going to become, or that struggle around the right to the city is, I mean, going to become more and more critical, you know, throughout throughout this century. I mean, it's pretty serious right now. So if you look at like LA and the massive homelessness that's right. there and how people are just being forced out of their homes, right. 
Well, for, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons, but I mean, mainly because, you know, they can't find jobs, you know, their lives are devalued compared to the amount of profit that land can make. Yeah. And, and especially if you think about that generation of men, I mean, they were brought here for, for one reason and, and that was to, to work, you know? Yeah. And so then to like, think about how, as they grow older, I mean, they're just sort of cast away right. and, and even in their their final years mm-hmm. i mean the one place that they can find to live somebody tries to tear it down because they want to make some money off of it right it's pretty fucked up yeah yeah okay well i mean yeah i remember you sharing that that story with me even a couple of years ago when we were um reading about the uh, san francisco state university uh strike mm-hmm. right these these initial articles that uh, ran in this uh, journal called Amer asia they're actually really good articles. You guys should look them up. Um, but I think, you know, so, I mean, building on that and, um, you know, thinking about your own family's history, I mean, uh, you talk a little bit more about like just how you came to the, um, to the SJCL program, the sure. social justice community organizing program. And, um, you know, what it was that you were kind of looking for when you first came here. Sure. So I got to Prescott College the fall of 2016. And actually, unlike a lot of students who come here, our school is pretty outdoor driven. I think a lot of people um, come here to pursue a career or a life in the outdoors, whether that's scientific or rock climbing. You know, yeah. I actually came here um, pretty interested in the cultural and regional studies program where a lot of, for lack of a better term, the precursors to the social justice community organizing classes are held in the undergraduate. So it's funny, like I was telling you before this interview, I originally thought what I was going to study was we were going to travel around Arizona, um, maybe go to Mexico and learn about different cultures and how we're all connected. You know, I didn't know how political my life was about to turn, you know, which I'm very happy it did in hindsight. You know, I remember the first First cultural cultural and regional studies class I took was called History of Conflict in the Southwest. We were learning about basically how Arizona came to be. Um, We were learning about westward expansion, colonization, how that manifests today, especially fall of 2016 in the midst of the Trump election. It was this really pivotal time, and I remember sitting in that class for that semester, and it was almost as if the blinds have been removed from my eyes. You know, I was like, wow. One, this stuff is fascinating, interesting, relevant, and undertaught. You know, I I was like, I went through my whole life and not knowing any of this stuff. I did know about it, just from a different perspective, you know? So that, that was kind of the catalyst. From there, I just started taking as many courses as I could. Ethnic studies, where we talked about SF State, um, and now, three years down the line, I'm, I'm starting the social justice community organizing masters. Yeah. You know, I think what what really drives me. Right. And I think what really drives anyone who does this work is at the end of the day, on a very surface level, we want to see a better world. Right. Like, I think in all of us, there's this deep compassion for everyone around us. Well, I'll speak for myself. That's really what drives me. I'm not the type of person who can just see deep injustice and stand there and do nothing about it. So here I am at this school that offers me tools to do something about it. 
the reason I'm doing SJCO is because the more I've sat in classes and we'll talk about Marxism or we'll talk about different ways to conceptualize governance, hierarchy, we'll talk about these very theoretical ideas. While I very much appreciate um, the theorizing and the, the readings and the academics, another part of me is like, cool, how am I going to bring this conversation to the streets and really affect change, right? Right. So I've been missing that kind of practicality, which is why I'm excited to start this graduate program where we're really going to get into that practicality and that's what it's all about, which is really why I started, I guess, what you want to talk about, what I did this summer. Well, I was going to say you, you got sort of a head start on that in that you we're working this summer with uh, the painters union. Right. And so, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. You're, you know, nice college kid from the Washington DC right. area, you know, and you spent the summer right. humping. Yeah. So I was, um, before this summer, I needed to do a senior project with which this college requires um, before you start a graduate program, right? You have to have all your, um, requirements done for graduation before you accelerate into the master's, which I was planning on doing. So I was trying to think, I was like, what's an opportunity where I can make a senior project that aligns with my studies and get paid for? Smart. Yeah. (laughs) Those were my only requirements straight up. That's it. That's all I cared about for this summer. So originally, you know, I applied to like this stipend internship for campaign organizers in Phoenix. I reached out to this woman who was running for Congress out of Flagstaff that you told me about. Long story short, those were a lot of dead ends. And I'm actually really glad that I didn't get those opportunities because I found the Painters Union in Phoenix. Yeah. What's the local number? Local 86. Okay. It's a part of IUPAT, which stands for the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. So it's an international union that represents workers in the United States, both in the United States and Canada predominantly painters, at least in Phoenix. Um, but I also know that they represent people, drywall, bridge workers, a whole different types of trades. So yeah, like you said, this summer I start working with them. I had an idea at first. I was like, I'm going to hit up the people at the union and I wanted to be an organizer. And so I called them. I'm like, Hey, Is there any way you guys could pay me to do basically all the stuff that you don't want to do in the office or go out and have these meetings, yada, 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 organize. um, And I'll do that for a minimum wage and just be a fly on the wall in the office and see how unions operate. I was talking to this guy on the phone. He's a head of apprenticeship and he was, you know, he was catching my drift and he was like, okay, so you want to, you're looking for uh, monetary compensation. And I was like, yeah. Um, what he basically told me, he's like, we're a small office. So if, if you're looking to get paid, there's always work for you. In the office, I don't think there's any work. But you could sign up as an apprentice journeyman, you know, and we'll put you to work this summer. Tons of work. You'll get paid. And then he said that, if anything, you will learn as much, if not more, about unions being having that working perspective than just being one of us in the office. You think that's true? 100%. Yeah. 100%. So what that looked like, right, was I signed up with the union. I filled out my paperwork. I joined the union as an apprentice journeyman. In terms of the trade of painting, you have your apprentice journeyman, which there are like three different stages. 
And then after those three stages, you journey out, it's called, into being a journeyman. And then from a journeyman, you can turn into a foreman, which is kind of like the top of the totem pole, for lack of a better term, um, the kind of like hierarchy of trades. Right. So I joined day one, no experience, apprentice journeyman. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's hard work. Yeah. And I'm not going to lie. It is hard work. Uh, and you were down in Phoenix, right? Phoenix. So it's yeah. like, what, 120 degrees yeah. every day? Yeah, 100. Yeah, I would <laughs> I would wake up, right? So I, I had to be at my job site for the majority of the summer at 5 in the morning. Where I lived, we were about 30, 45 minutes from the bulk of the job sites I was at. I was only at 3 this summer. So I'd wake up at 3.30 every morning to about like 90 degree weather, 3.30 in the morning. Get in my car and uh, drive 33 miles to be at work at five. And if you're right, and if, if it was an exterior job, there was a point this summer where all I was doing was taping around metal gates to be sprayed um, black, you know, just all metal work outside, two weeks straight, you know, triple digits. Felt like my pores were boiling, Yeah, you know. It's, it's you know, hot. It's really hot. But yeah, I mean, it was it was a profound experience this summer. Profound. I mean, we've we've kind of talked about this a little bit, but um, I mean, profound in in what way? You know, like you have uh, one of the things that you just mentioned a a second ago was sort of the being immersed in like the theoretical aspects of like social change and everything. Right. And then having this conversation with this uh, with your union rep. Right. And him saying, if you really want to learn about unions, then you need to be a worker. Right. Right. Where has that intersection of practice in theory sort of led you to at this point? Right. So, I mean, he was 100% right. Like, before joining the union, I knew what unions were. They're a democratic body of workers, um, which on paper are supposed to offer basically a platform for workers to organize, fight for their material rights in a more powerful way with um, the companies which hire them. I knew what that was, and I wanted to, I guess, learn more about it by working in the office. But as a worker, what I realized, you know, showing up to work with these guys five days a week, 40 hours, a lot of them don't want to talk about democracy. They don't want to talk about building power and and how are we going to affect this massive social change. What they're really worried about is, and this is true for this union right now, can we get dental, a dental plan with our benefits and a raise, you know? Yeah. That's about it. the necessities of life. Yeah. Yeah. You know? How are they going to feed their family? How am I going to yeah. feed my family, no. you know? And that was, you know, that was an awakening for me um, to some extent because we talk about that, sure. We'll talk about the working class in these classes, right? How could you not? Yeah. But you could talk about it all you want. And there's one thing to talk about it and theorize about this and how society is divided by class and all this oppression. And then there's another thing to wake up at 3.30, just like the <laughs> other seven dudes you're working with show up to work and then kind of see it for your own eyes. Yeah. You know, A lot of these guys I worked with, it was predominantly Mexican, right? And they immigrated here for a better life, to make more money. A lot of these guys, I, wor- I worked with some dudes 50, 60 years old. They've been painting ever since they got here, last 40, 20, 40 years. Yeah. 
yeah, they're not worried about, they're not worried about the next president. You know, they're not worried about voting. They're worried about the necessities, the very real necessities of their life. Like I need to feed my family of nine, you know, with my kid with epilepsy, I need to pay for her medical bills now. Right. So it, it, it grounded experiences for me. Yeah. You know, what, what do you think the lesson, I mean, I, and I know, you know, you're, you're a young guy and right. you know, but you, you, you know, you're thinking about this, right? right? So like, and you're really at this, at this moment where you're like poised to take a lot of your own work, you know, to the next level. And I, I think certainly the experience that you had this past summer working as a painter in the union is going to be one of the rungs of that ladder. Mm -hmm. But just from, from your perspective as 22, 23 year old person who is deeply invested in figuring out how to make social change, right? Mm -hmm. What is the lesson that progressives or people on the left can take away from that experience? Oh, I got, I got a lot to say about progressives and people on the left to change and lessons. <laughs> Okay, here's one. This is in general, okay? I think there is this narrative in this country that, and it's very internalized, that change only happens with a vote, which only comes two to four years. Right. So I'm going to vote for this representative who hopefully mirrors my values and my positions on certain policies and how I see the world and how I think sh things should operate. I'm going to vote for this person. And if they win, great. Probably be happy for the next two to four years. And if they don't, oh, well, I'm just going to go back to my day-to-day -day life and uh, not do anything about it, right? Um, that is the worst way to go about change. You know, if you truly care about the people around you and if you truly care about the issues that you're so adamant about on Facebook, then you would do way more then put in a vote and talk about it at dinner every two to four years. Yeah. You know, being in the union, um, it's really what I've realized is, is um, change is very ground up. You can't expect, like I said, to vote for someone and, and experience change just like that. What's cool about the union is, and we're talking about practicality, and this is why I, one of the main reasons I decided to join the union. Unions, they're a very practical site in society right now where you can see mass amounts of people have very tangible power over their own material rights. What I mean by that is, so when I joined the union this summer, they were just in the midst of renegotiating a three-year contract. So every three years, they, the union goes for renegotiations with the 16 companies that they work with, right? So if you're a union member, if you were a painter, you would get a letter in the mail or you get an email saying, hey, we're about to go under renegotiations. We're going to have a meeting this Wednesday at 6.30. Everyone gather at the hall. We're going to talk about what we want. It's the union's job to ask the members. The union is nothing without workers, right? It's the union's job to ask the workers, what do, you, what do you want to see these next three years? And then they start making a list. These workers want dental. They want $3 wage increase. They want bigger pension, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The union takes all of that, crunch numbers, makes a slide, and then brings it to the companies. 
And just like any negotiation, right? I'm sure the companies were probably like, absolutely not. It's too much. And then they have a counter offer. And then it goes back and forth, right? The union's whole job is to advocate on behalf of those workers. You know, there's no budging with them. They'll, they'll, they'll bring back that counter offer from the companies. And then they'll ask the workers again, what do you guys think? What should we do? You know, and then they'll probably give them different options of how certain things will look and how certain things will work. But like we've seen throughout history, if it gets to a point where the companies aren't going to budge, the union's not going to budge either. And then there's going to be strikes. And then oftentimes the workers get what they want or really, you know, what they need Yeah. Um, to put into more better terms, what they need. Yeah. So that's what's cool about unions. Yeah. You know. I, I always thought, I mean, like when I, when I first started as a, um, as a young organizer, 25, 26 years ago or whatever, mm. one of the, the best lessons that I got was from an older organizer because somebody was standing up there talking about like, it's a 3% raise or it's a 45, you know, percent or whatever. And I mean, Honestly, I had no fucking idea what this guy was talking about. Right. 3% meant nothing to me. Right. Until this uh, older organizer said to me, okay, well, let's look at it this way. Your rent's going to go up $100. Right. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, now that, I could get behind that. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, milk costs, you know, 50 cents more. Right. You know, a loaf of bread just went up to, you know, 250. Yeah, I, I can get behind that. And right. so I think that, as you know, this conversation goes on and even some of the sentiments that, that I really feel that you're expressing, I mean, it, what we're talking about is uh, the practicality of it. So sure, we all know that we, well, we all do know in, on some level, we understand it sometimes a little better than others, that we trade our labor for wages, right? And then that's, that's the trade-off in a capitalist society. Like we do work, they give us money, we don't own the means of production. We don't own the thing that we produced. What we get is is money, right? So then how that money gets spent becomes becomes critical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that's the thing. I, when you're talking about like the negotiations and all that kind of stuff, I mean, it, it totally makes sense because um, people who work for a living are not asking for unreasonable things to be able to go to the dentist or to take their kids to the doctor, right? Or just to be able to pay their rent. And I think right. it's, I think that narrative, it's unreasonable to expect your employer to compensate you, you know, for your labor. Right. Like you said, it's really internalized, man. I mean, people feel ashamed to ask for more money. Right. It is. It's so internalized from, from an individual standpoint to a societal standpoint. So I, there is a job where, like it was the same job I was talking about earlier where we were at Arizona State nursing campus just doing a whole bunch of metal work. Me and two other guys um, just spraying these rusted metal gates black outside. It's a campus, right? So their summer classes are rolling and things are going on. And it, at first, it was so shocking to me that uh, <laughs> I was outside, right? I was outside, triple-digit heat, full uniform. I had my hard hat, my neon green shirt for safety, my white pants covered in paint, my boots. 
and I'm taping, I'm just doing my job, and I'm sanding down a metal gate, and people just walk by with zero acknowledgement of my existence, you know, which what it felt like, and which it probably was. I, I really don't know if they saw me, you know. And uh, that kind of hit me, and then I started to think, I was like, it happened so much, right? People, people would just walk by, you know, walk by me, walk by my coworkers, like nothing. And then I, I started to think, I was like, I've probably gone the majority of my life just like these people with blinders up in, in terms of seeing work crews or just all this labor around me, you know? It, it, it was this crazy experience of like feeling invisible and then thinking about how this happens all over the world yeah at all times of the day yeah you know that yeah it's 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 true like people walk you can walk on the street and if there's workers i've this ha- this has happened to me my whole life and you just walk by them and you don't even think about the labor that's going into there and then to take that one step further it's almost as if we live in a society where a lot of people think that material objects just pop out of thin air and yeah it just happens Another realization I had this summer, which I also knew, I mean, we talk about this stuff in class, but it's one thing to like feel it in your body is that these things don't just happen. It's true that every single thing, every single material thing is a product of labor. And to have that just invisible from an individual standpoint, from two nursing faculty walking by, you know, not really just not acknowledging or not even seeing the labor around them to now with this current administration and really just administrations in general, passing all this legislation that is putting so much power into corporate America yet taking away power from working America is pretty crazy. You know, and we're talking about these narratives that have been internalized. That's a pretty clear example in my head from a narrative that's been internalized from a very individual standpoint that is that has gradually you know rippled to like societal and national legislation standpoint yeah so wow you had a big summer dude yeah big summer yeah that's what we have for today another episode of the reality dysfunction dedicated to preserving the history of struggle among people of color in this country i want to thank nick for sharing his story it's great to be here all right yeah it is great to be here i agree All right, y'all, be safe out there, keep hydrated, and know where the exits are. We'll see you next time. See ya.